I'm Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and you're listening to Fifth Emission. Today, we're going to do a little archive diving. We're going to learn about the present by examining our past, and specifically, we're going to discuss two subjects, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and, separately, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Let's start with Dr. Fauci. If you aren't old enough to remember the AIDS crisis, you likely only know him as one of the medical professionals who regularly appears besides President Trump at the daily coronavirus press briefings. He's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, a role he's had since 1984. But if you were living in the Bay Area as HIV AIDS took hold here, you might regard him as a familiar face who architected the federal government's response to that pandemic. AIDS uniquely affected the Bay Area, killing more than 40,000 San Franciscans in the pandemic years alone. Joining me to talk about what we found in the Chronicle archives about Dr. Fauci, as well as the Spanish flu, is Peter Hartlob. Peter, thanks for being on the show today. So, Yeah. um, uh, So you went to the archive, which uh, the newsroom is closed. So uh, you went to the archive, though, to to check out uh, what we had in there about Dr. Fauci. Um, Maybe you should start by um, explaining for anyone who hasn't listened to your podcast before what the state of our archives are and, and what we have down there. Um, we're super, super lucky. Um, a lot of uh, news agencies, newspapers, TV stations have thrown away their history. Um, I hear this all the time from people who um, everything's gone. We have had this group of photographers and librarians for more than the last century who have meticulously cataloged everything in San Francisco history, photos, negatives, maps, um, everything that you can think of. And they're in two rooms now down in our basement. And they've basically been there since the 1920s when we moved into the building. That's it's it's the coolest part of the building, I have to say. And 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 everything is organized. That's everything that's not digitized, I should say, is organized in these strange sort of um, topic areas. So you went down and you went to Fauci, Anthony. Is that what you did? <laughs> I, I, I went there and I checked under AIDS to um, I went to a few different places. Uh, th- these librarians over the generations have been like a religious order. I mean, they're so careful about filing things that once I knew that we had photos down there, which a digital search proved, it was very quick to find them. Uh, yeah, I think Fauci, Anthony, And just a mother load showed up. I mean, I was hoping I might be able to search through an AIDS conference file and find a picture of him sitting in a corner. Um, Found that for Mark Benioff when he was like 19. And I I took myself out to lunch. I was so happy. This was uh, Deanna Fitzmorris had taken photos of him. Like her job was to go out and get photos of him at a 1989 smaller AIDS conference at Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. And um, he looks very young, uh, looks the same, but uh, he's, you know, a little over 40, I think. Well, he, ha- he has brown hair <laughs> for one thing. Yes. Now he's a little bit more gray. So as you wrote in your story that we're um, posting um, on sfchronicle.com today, um, 
he's not, you know, we know him now because of these controversies about whether the far right, whether Trump's supporters like him, how he's trying to do this job of threading a political needle. And and you found in the archives that that's not a new role for him. That's how he came to the National um, Institute. Yeah, I, I mean, it was very much from the beginning and the parallels are often striking. Um, the very first story of Dr. Fauci in the Chronicle Archive is a story um, from 1983 uh, where he's just correcting the misconceptions about how AIDS is transmitted. And the story's written like, you know, can you get AIDS by, you know, getting having someone sneeze on you? And he's like the voice of reason saying, if you work with someone with AIDS, you can be around the water cooler you're not going to get it. It's not how it transmits. That was the beginning. And then throughout his career, I mean, there's just years and years and years of false, um, false information coming out. At one point, Ronald Reagan, um, uh, much later when he finally acknowledged that the AIDS crisis was happening, he, he started talking about, um, how people should store their own blood. Like, I I don't know, like have your own blood locker in your house because that way you won't get it. And those were the kinds of things that were going on. And that was very much early on, especially a lot of his role was just explaining to the American people what AIDS was and what to be afraid of and what not to be afraid of, which is very familiar if, if you, you know, hear him on the news in 2020. Yeah. And he also had a, a president who was, um, not really interested in um, a lot of what he had to say, at least in the beginning. And and that that poses a problem even today for him, it seems. Yeah, I mean, again, the parallels are, are, are there everywhere. I mean, it was an underfunded agency. Um, there were a lot of activists who were actually protesting Fauci, but really what they were protesting was that Fauci, you know, didn't have the money to do the things that I think everybody wanted to do. And and pretty quickly, even as they were even as they were protesting him, um, the activists and Fauci started to meet and get along really well and, and collaborate. So I, I this was really fascinating to me because, um, you know, probably due to the fact that the Chronicle has such a long history covering AIDS HIV in this community, we we know a lot of the history of this, but I I feel like most people, I, I barely remember AIDS. I was really young when it first came out, but even I remember how much disinformation there was at the time. Um, and I, if you've lived here a really long time, you might remember muni drivers uh, with, with masks on. And I've thought of that image so many times in this current epidemic. How many how how was he able to to use the activists to actually help with the AIDS and HIV fight? Well, I I think he had frustration and he stated it later that, um, you know, there were all these government rules that were not set up for a pandemic. Um, The FDA would have a lot of steps before they'd let someone um, try drugs that were in testing or, or combined drugs. There were a lot of things that were holding that up. And the activists were saying, and I think he respected it and, and to a large degree agreed with it, that um, they're dying. They don't have time to um, sit around and wait for these these rules to go by that were were made for, for 
you know, things like painkillers, not made for a drug that is your life or death, you know, the difference that, that that's going to be made. So I think, you know, and I know talking to a couple of activists, as I did for this story, that he started to kind of work with them behind the scenes pretty early on and figure out, because in San Francisco and in New York, um, the activists were educating themselves very well. So they could walk in and talk his language. Um, a lot of them are in think tanks now that have survived um, the, the activists. So he quickly uh, was learning from them and um, being moved by them, I think, in a lot of cases. Yeah, I want you to tell us uh, specifically about his encounter with Terry Sutton. Terry Sutton um, was a school teacher in San Francisco. If you uh, actually, if the AIDS quilt, when it finally is out, I know it was supposed to be this summer, um, he has a, a square on the AIDS quilt. And he was a patient who, as I mentioned before, you know, was really waiting for the FDA to speed things up. There were two drugs he could use, and basically his choice were death or blindness. But there was a third drug that was in the FDA cycles, and they weren't doing these parallel track um, testing with patients, so he couldn't have access to it. And he and Fauci met, and Randy Schultz wrote about it in a, in a column that was published in the Chronicle that I dug up. And I, here's Fauci's quote um, after talking to Terry Sutton, this guy who's saying, like, blindness or death when I could, when I could have my sight and I could live, what, what kind of choice is that? And Fauci said to the Chronicle, he made absolutely perfect sense. Here was this intelligent and articulate guy who wasn't confrontational, who didn't shove a banner in my face, but had this terrible dilemma. You can't be a human being without having that move you. And talking to these activists, they told me more stories like that. Um, one activist, uh, uh, Peter Staley, who I talked to, protested Fauci's building, um, gets He's the first one arrested and they bring him through Fauci's building to take him out the back to bring him to a van, you know, the police do. And Fauci, he runs into him in the hallway and they're like old friends. It's like, hey, you know, is that you, Peter? Yeah. What, what are you doing here? Well, I'm doing my job, you know, Tony Fauci. And 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 that made an impact. And and uh, clearly, you know, there's a personal side to him that, that the activists like a lot, liked a lot, too. It, this seems like it was pretty unusual at the time. I mean, I, I we ha we still have rampant homophobia in 2020, but back then it wasn't it, it feels to me like it was a very radical and unusual thing for him to do, given how much homophobia and how much um, us versus them there was in the beginning of the fight against HIV AIDS. I, I think it was very unusual, and and it was uh, it's striking to me reading it. Um, not only is he, um, you know, again the voice of reason, and and in a progressive way when you read the words compared to you know I, I lived through it too in terms of I, I was a teen when this was happening. Um, so I mean, the activist told me you know the first kind of dinner they had with him. Um, they had had like a couple of meetings already and he invited them to, uh, uh, apartment of his deputy who was, who was a gay man. And then, and then you talk about, you know, going against the government. I mean, he's relatively new in that position. He, he turned down over his career being the director of the NIH. So he's only the director of the NIAID and he's citing with the activists over the FDA, and he's making these radical changes um, that are 
not what the scientists want. Um, scientists came around later, not what the FDA wanted. I mean, he's throwing bombs and at the government, not the activists. It's very interesting to read this because you can see how those early beginnings that was 40 years ago still are informing some of the things that he's doing in these daily press briefings, even even today. Um, eventually, the Chronicle would write a bit of a story of of Fauci and his transformation as a scientist and portrayed as is would it be fair to say it was like a coming of age tale for him yeah it was uh randy schultz wrote it and he writes about how you know protesters the famous randy schultz yeah um yeah. and the band played on who who himself died of uh, uh hiv related complications um you know, protesters called him a Nazi. Uh, Larry Kramer, who's still around, was saying that Fauci was a murderer. And within a year, the community came around, you know, and, and it um, and that 1990 was the big AIDS conference in San Francisco. And that moment was, you know, wholly pivotal as well. Uh, I think looking back, you know, as Fauci looks back on his life and, and how he's changed as a bureaucrat, I would think that would be one of the one of the moments that he would bring up as well. I'm speaking with Peter Hartlob about some of the things he found in the archives about Dr. Anthony Fauci. Peter, I want to take a break and I want to come back and um, I want to talk about another dumpster dive you did this time in regards to the Spanish flu outbreak in San Francisco. We'll be back right after this. I'm back with reporter Peter Hartlob and Peter's expertise really at the Chronicle is many things, but you know the archives better than anyone else. And right as soon as this pandemic started to take hold, uh, the the parallels to the Spanish flu in 1918 um, seem very, um, very obvious. So what did you find in the archives about how San Francisco reacted during the Spanish flu pandemic? Uh, San Francisco reacted really good to start. Um, you could say it was like San Francisco is now and that people saw San Francisco as a model. Now, a couple advantages. This broke out in, during World War I and then in the Midwest. So by the time it was coming over our way, we knew what it was. And they shut down the city. Um, no dancing. <laughs> dancing was outlawed. Uh, masks were mandatory by like threat of fine. So, I mean, they, they called them mask slackers if you were not wearing a mask. And even the mayor, Mayor uh, uh, Sonny Jim Rolfe, uh, was charged $50 for lowering his mask at a prize fight. So this was serious. This is in November of um, 1918, mostly October, November, December. Um, not too many cases, a little over a thousand dead, which was nothing compared to like Chicago and Philadelphia. So San Francisco in November, late November, declares victory. Mission accomplished. We've beat the coronavirus. Except. Yeah, except we did not. Um, it was actually <laughs> extremely premature. <laughs> um, an incredible blunder that, frankly, I think seems to be calling through the century to us right now as we're making our own decisions in 2020 um, because that was a, a very bad decision. The people were tired of wearing their masks. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of businesses that were closed. All the theaters were closed, uh, sporting events. 
they all wanted to be open. So they opened everything at once, had celebrations, um, literally were like giving awards to the uh, the first responder types uh, uh, and in rooms that were packed, packed luncheons with no masks and the virus is still out there. And then it comes back unsurprisingly to us now in January and hits San Francisco almost as bad as it did the first time. Um, you know, we I think we had about 1,800 by the end of the year in 1918. That was doubled in uh, 1919 by a public that did not want to be told again to wear their masks. They did not have a good reception the second time. That's it's very interesting. So the second time around, even though lots of people were dying, almost 100 in a single day at one point, did people do as well the second time around as they did the first time? Yeah, I mean, it was um, there's actually an account of a city council meeting where people are walking up to the mayor one after the other, giving excuses why they don't want to wear their masks again. And one of them, no kidding, one person goes up and says there's like Russian health foods from Russia that they can all eat and get um, better instantly and not have to worry about this. Um, other people are saying, well, if the city just cleaned the sidewalks, we would have no Spanish flu. And um, and and to a degree, the city, uh, you know, listened to them and didn't they, they brought the masks back, but people weren't wearing them. There was an anti-mask league that would meet with like thousands of people at like a roller skating rink or an ice skating rink, which back then ice skating rinks had spectators and you could seat a couple thousand people. And there's this anti-mask league refusing to wear their masks. They didn't stop theaters. Uh, large gatherings were permitted and people died. And it was such a blunder. I mean, you look back on it now and it's such a lesson, you know, when not to say mission accomplished, when not to declare victory and not to uh, take pandemics lightly. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's a really good place to end this discussion about the archives. The archives can always teach us about what's going to happen in the future by showing us what has happened in the past. And it's it, with both Dr. Fauci and the Spanish flu epidemic. Uh, I think it's those are two excellent cases that that inform where we are today, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'd like to thank Peter Hartlaub for being with me today. Thank you to Karen Creighton for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.